What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, folks? Today, we have a super fun conversation with Pratik Desai, founder and chief architect at one to one Pratik's a rocket scientist turned MarTech personalization expert. He's armed with a bachelor's from Rutgers in aerospace and mechanical engineering, and he got a start at Accenture in technology consulting and later J&J in consumer apps as a digital product manager. He later took a deep dive into MarTech when he became lead product manager at PVH, focused on Salesforce marketing products. This led him to spend three years at Salesforce, where he worked his way up to personalization practice lead. And most recently, Pratik started his own agency called One to One to focus on personalization strategy and implementation. He also runs a weekly AI discussion group to help folks keep up with the fast-changing landscape of curation and generative AI. He's a well-traveled, trivia-loving, full-stack developer, and we're super pumped to be chatting with him today. Pratik, thanks for your time, man. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. Awesome to have you on the show, Pratik. Um, you know, it's funny because marketers come from all different backgrounds and hearing your background in aerospace and mechanical engineering, there's always a question mark of how you got into the marketing space. And, uh, you know, Phil and I are both wondering if this is part of your plan to uh, around the AI takeover so you can naturally shift yourself to space exploration, interplanetary marketing. You might be well positioned <laughs> already to do that. Um but I'd love to hear a little bit about your background um, for folks on the on the show coming from all different angles. Like this is a really cool background, and we're going to get into to some pretty technical, uh, sciencey topics. So I'd love to get a little bit of uh, your background here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I would say I, I owe my my career journey and trajectory to Accenture, and I think Accenture does a really good job of recruiting engineers out of Rutgers. And at the time when I was graduating, the aerospace industry really wasn't mainstream, right? SpaceX wasn't, you know, what it is today, or Virgin Galactic wasn't what it is today. So if you wanted a lucrative job in aerospace, you really wanted to go down the defense route, especially with my, you know, specialty in propulsion. And so with with my mindset on, hey, that's not really where I want to go, I started to focus on what, what else is out there. And Accenture really put this technology consulting path in front of me. And so, you know, the way I treat it is opportunities and luck are really just the same thing. You take them as they present themselves. And I, I took the opportunity, work, worked my way into Accenture, did a couple internships with them, and then kind of the path just unfolded in front of me. And I, I just kept going with it. And you have your your pilot's license as well, right? So it's not just the technical background, like you're you're actually flying planes out there? <laughs> That's true. Yes. I, so a couple of years into my career, I, I did miss the whole aviation aspect of, of my, my education. So I went back and did my pilot's license here in Somerset, New Jersey. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of missed the thrills, right? And I'll, <laughs> I'll be honest, the, the freedom you get from getting a pilot's license is nothing. It, it's, it's hard to describe. There's one thing about getting on a plane and just traveling to a new country and being able to explore it. There's another aspect to it, which is just flying yourself to another place and exploring that. It's a whole different version of freedom. It sounds super wild. I, I picture you in this light aircraft, maybe a, a Cessna 150 or you more of like a 172 Skyhawk type of guy. I'm definitely still on the smallest of the smalls, but I'm still dealing with a Piper Cherokee. So um, I, I haven't even elevated a, a past that. I'm still in a two-seater uh, Cherokee by myself. I'm sure it's hard to find some some time to, to focus on that, but like how long until you get into like 
like an F-22 and pull off a Kovacher bell maneuver like we see in uh, Top Gun Maverick. Oh man, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that that's something in the cards, but <laughs> I, I will say that I've I've spent a lot of time on the top of the Freedom Tower just watching F-22s take off. <laughs> I love it. In in preparation to to transition to the next question, I actually asked uh, ChatGPT what uh, they thought MarTech and aerospace have in common. And there were some pretty interesting things that it, it's put up. Um, but I'm curious, like out of these four here, which one um, do you think resonate the most? Like the first one was data-driven decision-making, um, you know, aerospace and MarTech, you have to collect and analyze data to, to make critical decisions. They also said technology uh, advancements and innovation and like simulation and modeling tools. They also mentioned problem solving and customer-centric approaches, even though there's different customers in, in both industries. Uh, but they also mentioned integration, whether it's like engines, avionics, control systems, or CRMs and CMSs and CDPs, both aerospace and, and MarTech involve the integration of multiple systems and, and components, right? Yeah, I mean, as always, ChatGPT amazes me with its extrapolation of <laughs> response. That That's amazing. Um, I would say the data-driven decision-making aspects of, of, an, of education and engineering, it, it really sets you up, especially, you know, the way Accenture kind of just throws you at clients and expects you to figure it out. Um, you know, my first year at Accenture, definitely, I leveraged a lot of what we learned in engineering in terms of, hey, you're a problem solver, and you're going to solve these problems logically based on data-driven decisions. So it definitely sets you up in the technology world in a way that I, I, I would argue you don't necessarily get from other, let's just say, educational backgrounds. Um, but that being said, I think from a MarTech lens, the integration aspect is, is the big one, right? I think there's a lot of uh, times where I, I get dropped onto a client side or I get dropped into a workshop and I, I just pull up Lucidchart and I go, hey, just help me understand how this all works together. And it starts to bring conversation alignment that we just never see happen outside of just starting to literally put boxes on a Lucidchart and draw lines and go, okay, how quick does this happen? Okay, where does this act data actually go? What does this data flow look like? And so that integration aspect that you you get, you know, you get a really strong understanding of an engineering background. We've been able to translate that. I say we, cause there's a couple of engineers uh, at, at the firm we're, we're building right now. We've been able to translate that learning into the MarTech world and really drive home, hey, data excellence is really important. How is this data moving? Where's this data going? How quick is it moving? Uh, and that's help, helped us be really successful in what we do. Love it. Yeah, I feel like uh, we're definitely gonna have some time to, to dive in some some data excellence uh, topics there. Um, I, I I do want to take a, a short turn into to sci-fi. We're we're huge science fiction uh, fans on the podcast here. Uh, I don't know if you caught my last episode. I did uh, definitely dived into like escapism and 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 talked about my favorite TV shows and books. But I made the big assumption here that based on your field of study, I guess that you are also a, a sci-fi fan. So I'd love to get your list of favorite science fiction books or, or movies. But more importantly, I love your take on like the speculative. Future future of personalization. I, I recently started reading uh, All Are Wrong Todays by Alain Metze and in one of his alternate future timelines, he describes a world where advertising isn't just like one-to-one, -one, it's also tailored based on your mood uh, at that day, like based on uh, how happy you are or like if you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, what you had for breakfast, events that you have on your calendar next week or stuff that you did yesterday, like it's ultra tailored and, and personalized and the protagonist in the book 
book, his big idea is to offer consumers a flat fee to opt out of ads completely, but it actually ends up being a big flop. And in that world, uh, in the book, consumers actually really want this like hyper tailored ads because it's not noise and you're not like annoyed by shit that you don't care about. Like it's all stuff mm-hmm. that's super relevant to you. So I'd love like, uh, what does uh, the speculative future of personalization look like uh, according to Pratik? Yeah, so for, first of all, I absolutely love time travel. So in terms of sci-fi, the, the, the biggest genre that I just cannot stay away from is, is time travel. So nice. you know what Star Trek did recently in I think 2009 where they rebooted the entire entire series with uh, you know Spock going back um, and, and kind of you know affirmed a, a dynamic timeline was was fascinating to me and that that that's exactly where my head goes down i think you know it's we've learned so much about how the physical world works it's really just fascinating to see how movies and books start to build out rules for things that we don't know about right time travel is something that we can we can start with time dilation as a starting point but then we just really don't know that anything past that so you're free to create your own rules and the way these some of my favorite books and movies the way they they decide start building those rules and start to build logical consistencies as they continue to tell the story. It's just fascinating. I, I just love it. Um, some some of the examples would be uh, Interstellar would be a, a mainstream one, but Primer Primer is one that I, I don't think it's enough credit for the way it creates its rule set for how time travel works, and then creates logical consistencies throughout the story to show you how it really can be manipulated over time. So. I, I, for your listeners, if, if they haven't seen Primer, it's definitely one that I would go into. Um, that being said, in terms of in terms of the book you just read, first of all, I'm going to have to read that book because that sounds fascinating. Uh, but I, I do truly agree with the premise of offering an ability to opt out of personalization. That being said, I also do truly agree that customers crave hyper-personalization. The outcome of customers not wanting a full opt-out, that makes sense to me. I think... Nine months ago, I took a big bet on cur- curation AI, personalization, decided to build an agency around it. And the reason for that is I, I think it's a really big movement where customers expect you to talk to them as if you already know them from the moment that first interaction happens. So it's, it's really less of a question of, do does, does this need to happen? And more of a question of when does it need to happen? And is the customer engaging with you in a way that they've given you that permission? So I, I agree with the idea that a permission set or a preference center or a global opt-out mechanism needs to exist, but at the individual customer interaction level, I think where we struggle, and we've, we've, we've actually spent a little bit of time talking to Y Combinator, we've actually gotten their attention on this, which is mm. how do you give the customer the ability to say yes, no, or maybe, and not make it so black and white where it's always personalized or never personalized, right? Obviously, in the world of e-commerce, you know, things can get pretty personalized pretty quickly, and there's not a lot of, let's just call it, you know, issues with that. Uh, but in other industries, be it politics, you start to get into weird dynamics of, am I personalizing with the intent of removing friction, promoting tailored discovery? or I'm personalizing with the intent to misform and consecutive, you know, consequently influence outcomes. That's where it starts to get that fine line of, you know, intent is really crucial. And so obviously focusing on, on that aspect, 
we start to think about what does a preference center really get us and what does it do? You know, when, where and when does personalization begin? What does opt-out and opt-out, opt-in capabilities actually look like? How are you balancing the guidance and the promotion of discovery with the desire to change the actual behavior and all that aspects to start to become really fascinating. So this is something my company is really looking at in terms of, can we build something that makes sense to actually roll out to customers and give them the ability to opt in and out as they see fit, uh, but give them the right experience at the right time. It's a really delicate balance. There's so many fascinating questions that pop into my head as we we kind of crack <laughs> into this discussion. And I mean, you know, as you were discussing, as both of you and Phil were talking, I was thinking about, you know, my own reflection. Would I want to see personalized ads? And I started to think about it. Like, actually, I probably would because I don't want to see you know, irrelevant things. But then I started to get uncomfortable. And I wonder if our listeners think the same way or the market, you know, in the AI space is how is this data collected? What does it say about me and my personal level? What data is not used in these personalization campaigns? And then like, there's almost this ethical moral question, which I know we've, we dive into that in our four part series on AI quite a bit, but I'm curious on your take on this. It's just like, how, how much does personalization kind of confirm biases that already exist you're already personalizing based on behavior does it also account for new new possibilities you mentioned politics like hey is you know one of the challenges in modern politics is uh these vacuum chambers or these echo chambers if we have personalization does it kind of keep driving people down the same path or do we have interesting avenues open up in terms of personalization so Pratik, i'd just be interested in your take on kind of what i put out there and how that data collection and that that moral conundrum is all all playing out in the market as you're uh, as you're launching your business yeah I, I guess the question is really when do you trigger awareness mm -hmm. right because I, I think that's the big thing to me is the customer should have an opportunity to say yes or no and that to me comes down to triggering awareness so for instance you get to a website and they they ask you to accept cookies or not. But we, we as a customer base, do we really know what accepting a cookie means, mm -hmm. right? I mean, obviously I can tell you that a lot of what we do is tracking based on a first party cookie from session to session on a website. But does a customer know what that actually does for them? Um, so I think we, we as an industry need to do a better job of one, triggering awareness at the right time. And that, that when I say at the right time, I think that depends on industry, right? For an e-commerce website, you probably can do that right away and let them know that they're accepting and declining personalization. For politics, I'm going to reserve, you know, where that makes sense. And I think we still need to figure that out. For a FinServe company, I think you can you can probably prompt that the moment the login actually happens and say, hey, we're starting to personalize for you because you've you've logged into your personal account. So there, there's different aspects of when mm -hmm. we can trigger that awareness by vertical. But I, I do want to give you an example of how this could be manipulated. And I'm going to give you a funny example to keep things lighthearted here. But um, my, my my wife tells me I'm a really hard person to shop, shop for gifts. <laughs> and so as Chris, you know, last, as last Christmas came across, um, she kept saying, hey, I don't know what to buy you. I don't know what to buy you. But what I did notice that she kept saying, hey, every time you get a new client, I constantly get ads for them on, on, on you know, Instagram. Mm. And I know why that is, is because I'm constantly visiting their website and doing testing. And so they're starting to use a third-party cookie to retarget on our IP address. And then obviously that means my wife gets the Instagram ads. Right. And so as Christmas started getting closer and closer, I was like, well, hmm, I can just start researching the things I would like her to buy for Christmas <laughs> and she'll get the ads for it. And lo and behold, you know, I've, obviously I, the three things that I wanted for Christmas 
where the th three things are un unwrapped. And so it, it obviously a lighthearted example of how you can start to manipulate some of this, um, some of this technology, but it, it was interesting to see her reaction that I knew exactly what I was unwrapping because her awareness was never triggered, even though she knew when I got new clients <laughs> an ad was to being delivered to her Instagram profile and explained the idea of IP address targeting, those products weren't something that she realized were being targeted for a specific reason that I actually invoked. So that triggering of awareness, I think that's where we are doing a really, let's call it a poor job of actually figuring out when the right time is to do it per industry. Um, and I think we just need to be better about when, when to actually inject that into the customer experience. Yeah, it's super fascinating to weave in. It's a lighthearted story, but I think it it kind of hits to the point, you know, around, for instance, you launching uh, your own agency one-to-one, -one, um, you know, the type of education that's happening in the marketplace, not just with like personalization, which a lot of this technology has existed in some form for the last, you know, 10 years or more. But now we have this, this power and promise of AI, you know, You've done a great job of of starting your agency and building it up. Uh, you already have what thirty five personalized implementations under your belt, so it's it's quite quite the notch already there. But I'm curious about like the human side of the journey, right? Like you're building an agency, you're also educating a, a market around like bleeding edge technology. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about like the sleepless nights, the the mistakes, the lessons, the contract negotiations, a little bit about how the the product is coming to market and and your vision for the future? Yeah, absolutely. And and wow, yeah. When we when we totaled it to 35, that was I was I was amazed at that number because we that was the first time we actually totaled it. Um, but that yeah, that is across the e-commerce and FinServe and streaming industry. So um I'm definitely proud of that number and I'm I'm proud of the team that we've been able to build out uh behind that number. I think that that's just doing service to the fact that you know we've we've only been doing this for nine months and we've built a team that is I'm I'm extremely proud of. Um, but yeah, I mean, the sleepless nights are real, right? In the beginning, I, I really stayed awake all the time, just wondering, hey, I've, I've taken this big bet, but where's our work coming from, right? Mm -hmm. the, the bet needs to come to fruition fairly quickly. So, um, you know, I've got, I've got a team that I built out. They trust me. And obviously, I trust myself, but the work's got to come. So it, it's, it's nice, though. Um, you know, I would say about four months in, I started transitioning from where's the work going to come to sleepless nights because I didn't know how we were going to fulfill the amount of work we were getting. Um, but yeah, those, those sleepless nights as they're evolving, you know, I've, I've started to put the trust in my team. We've built a really good one. Uh, they truly understand what we're about and what we're trying to do for our clients and focusing on client success as, as we make sure that we, we built the right team, we can just make sure that, you know, we're, we're doing what we can for our clients. Um, but that doesn't come with uh, come with uh, perfection. I'll I'll be honest with you and say we've made a lot of mistakes along the path. And I'd say the the beauty of staffing a team of Martech architects, and Martech Martech engineers, Martech uh, you know strategists is the unique understanding of the power of expert experimentation. Mm -hmm. Everyone on the team understands what it means to A/B test. Everyone understands what it means to create a hypothesis and go live with something and say, you know what, we were wrong, but we learned a lot. And, and I think we've, we've been able to take that mantra and really embody it as a culture at one-to-one -one and say, you know what, we're all going to make mistakes. I make mistakes, you make mistakes, but what we're going to do is we're going to do the best we can for our clients. And the moment we make the mistake, we're going to figure out what we learned from it and we're going to iterate and being able to embody that into our culture at one-to-one, -one, I think has been 
really, really impactful. Uh, albeit I still have the sleepless nights. <laughs> I know I know that feeling very well, so uh, I can totally empathize. It's really interesting talking about just like the 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 mistakes or the failures. I'm sure what we're talking about here in terms of mistakes and failures or course corrections, like this is brand new technology, cutting edge, you know, implementation in a lot of ways. You're trailblazing, so the mistakes that you're making are really just, I'm sure, developing a playbook uh, for the future in terms of you know contemporary best practices for this. Yeah, and I would say the the one thing that I look back, I, there's definitely no regrets, but the one thing that I would definitely tell myself nine months ago is don't be afraid to make those mistakes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm part of a lot of entrepreneurial groups and small business, um, you know, kind of support groups where people are just scared to actually go out there and just try. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I would say the biggest roadblock that I've seen in terms of success is the fear of failure, which is it's just so ironic because I would say, the only thing that's been able to make us successful is by failing so many times and learning how not to do it. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. it really is. And, and I see a lot of great ideas, great teams walk away because they're just so paralyzed before they even start because of that fear. And, and I would say if, if any, if any, of you, any of your listeners are thinking about going out there and trying something, I would say just try. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're not embarrassed by your first launch, you, you launch too late. And I think a lot of people are, are so embarrassed, they just never launch. And I'd say just do it. I, I think that's great advice. I started my own uh, consultancy actually about the same time as as you, Pratik, and your advice is ringing so true. I, I won't repeat it because I agree completely with it. Um, in terms of your consulting practice and, and what you're building, like, we talk a lot about data, data models, pipelines. We have a whole episode, on uh, episode 66 on this. Um, like we know as marketers, particularly on the data side, just how important, you know, getting that data pipeline, getting our data models right at the beginning. Um, but this isn't necessarily common knowledge. I'm sure you found in the marketplace as well. What's your advice to marketers to help them bridge this gap and, and walk away, you know, maybe from, from a, uh, this interview with a few real life examples of data going wrong or ways to correct the data that's, that's in your systems. Yeah. I, so whenever we engage a new client on personalization, the, the first thing that I always like to tell them, and I, I've tried to get the team to, to do the same, is personalization has two pillars. Pillar number one, data excellence. Pillar number two, operational excellence. Those are the foundational elements for an omni-channel personalization program. Uh, so in, in terms of your data, you, your data is as important as the data you don't have. The data is only as valuable as real time it is. So it, it, what, what do I mean by that? Here's an example of something that recently happened that really starts to drive those points home. Uh, we recently had a major win with a digital campaign uh, where we ended up moving a product that had been marked promotable with a certain amount of inventory by 10x its normal velocity. Um, and you know we were all celebrating, the dashboard showed that we had a great week and it was, it was just amazing time uh, to, to and validation of, of the technology that we were able to implement. Um, but of course, the, the reality was that we moved a product that was not promotable because the inventory was not there. And the weekend was spent by the merchandising team, the customer support team actually trying to figure out how to rush order a new product to service the orders that shouldn't have happened. And or the customer service team was sending out appeasement coupons for all the canceled orders that were going to very likely happen. So we, we actually went from one amazing campaign where the marketing organization was celebrating to actually costing the company 
a lot of money because we had the, we had the incorrect data signals. So so what went wrong there? Uh, we we realized that we were actually not getting real time inventory updates, uh, which the way the way the calculation happened is based on a certain threshold being met. We would actually mark something as not promotable. The AI never got that signal. Continue to promote. Realized that it was working really well and actually created a situation where it was the largest thing promoted for that time period and it moved a ton of product. Well, there was no product to move. And so that that really got us into a sticky situation that, you know, obviously we had to go back and real, you know, figure out, you know, retrospective, what actually happened here? Why why were we not getting the correct data signals? Um, but it gives us two examples that, you know, obviously your data is only as valuable as how real time it is. We didn't have real time inventory. So we we made a mistake. And then it, your data is as important as the data you don't have. From a marketing dashboard perspective, it looked like we created a huge amount of revenue for the company, but that didn't happen, right? We we saw attribution, whereas the actual company lost money. And so it's really important to understand what do, what is it that you do have and what is it that you don't have. Yeah, I love those two pillars. Like those those are awesome examples. It's it's important to partner closely, obviously, with with your data team. Like I, I think that a lot of folks listening to this can can come up with horror stories or, or examples of, of, of data gone wrong where like you, you're looking at your marketing automation platform and uh, what isn't real-time data because your data lake is taking you 24 hours before it updates from the warehouse and uh, you know what what the expectation is isn't actually reality i i like how you've coined that that data and operational uh, excellence w- would you say that like when you chat with clients like it's it's important to to start small, like you mentioned, um, like some of the industries you focus on. Like um, my background's like mostly mostly startups, but do you work with like bigger teams and stuff? Like when when I work with startups, it's like yeah, we, we need to we need to start small here. Like we can't we can't go from like no upsell strategy to how do we build a real time product recommendation engine? Yeah, I mean, so we we primarily deal with enterprise level clients. So it, it but yes, it, it no matter whether you're SMB enterprise level. The answer is start small, right? It, you have to start with an understanding of the critical elements of your data model. Structure your data in a way that meets the needs of your business, right? You want to make sure that the, the data actually informs the personalization program in a way that makes sense for what's going to be personalized and what content is actually going to be delivered to your customer. Um, but then you can scale from there. So if you if you start small, structure in a way that makes sense, and then bring in you know the bells and whistles from there, I think that's where you you start to see success. And then I, I think you touched on it, right? Largely, we're selling this this personalization engine into the marketing organization. So there is an impetus that your marketing organization needs to be really strongly connected with your data team. They need a seat at that data table to be able to actually understand what is it that our data does, how does it look like, and what what information do do we just simply not have? You mentioned something up at the top that I thought was fascinating just to bring back up for our listeners, this idea of putting down a lucid chart and mark, marking out all the integrations where the data is flowing. Like the data that's flowing into your systems that's been set up by human beings is has a chance to be quite fallible. I know like Phil and I both have a background in business intelligence and analytics in our past mm-hmm. lives. And like, how many times have I seen in the past where customers are like, you know, the data is garbage, it's terrible, it's not showing me what I want. And you you take a look under the hood and there's no data model, it's a total mess. So your advice around starting small makes a lot of sense, especially when you can start small and start near to the center of, you know, your most trusted and valuable data. 
I know you, you shared a, a pretty awesome and built a pretty awesome roadmap for personalization and we'll share it out in the podcast notes and, and the socials as well. Um, but like it charts out, you know, a nice process for, for uh, maturing your personalization. Do you want to walk us through your roadmap and, and how you, uh, how, how you build this process out for your clients? Yeah. So we, we found that clients, moving into a personalized or omni-channel personalization program really struggled with figuring out what does that actually mean, right? Like it's, it's a great jargon. It's a great buzzword uh, personalization, but what, what does it mean for us as, as an actual company? And generally, you know, we'll see marketers go out there and look at like companies and say, okay, uh, what it means for us is, you know, it generally comes back in the e-commerce industry, it'll come back as abandoned cart or abandoned browse. Uh, in the financial world, it'll come back as abandoned form. But the reality is that worked for some companies because they had those problems. And so not understanding what problems you have was, was something that we saw across the board and folks were just stuck on these use cases. Well, what, we've, what we ended up finding was as they started to actually release those use cases, they weren't getting the ROI that they were promised on you know, McKinsey's website or BCG's website. And, and as we started to dive a little bit deeper, we realized it's because they didn't have that problem right now. I think a lot of your listeners will say, well, most e-commerce have an abandoned problem. That's true. But the take that we're trying to take is the problems are varying in terms of magnitude. And so what we did with, with this uh, prioritization roadmap was actually try to take a perspective on across the, you know, I think 50 plus implementations we've done in the retail e-commerce space across our team, um, what is the general average business value that we've seen some of these use cases actually create and the complexity that we've seen these use cases take in terms of man hours to actually build. And the idea here was to put this in front of clients and say, hey, how do we create this view and make it hyper-personalized to you as, as in your use case and as in your business. And so we, we, you take this slide and actually run a workshop that's data-driven to start to understand across, again, we're in the e-commerce world, across your purchasing funnel, where do you have the challenges that, we can, be, that can be solved using these use cases? So here's, here's another example of how this kind of unfolded for a recent client. Uh, they came in again with the, with the idea that their personalization program was going to start with abandoned cart and abandoned browse. Of course, that takes time to un you know, deploy, build, deploy, all that. Well, as we started to dive into their data, we actually realized that yes, they have an abandoned problem, but over 60% of their customers who visited their site never actually looked at a product to even abandon it. So let's say they have a 2% conversion rate on 40% that end up actually looking at something. The question is, if I run abandoned journeys and up to 2% on that 40% moves to 5% conversion on 40%, is that a greater use of my time versus pushing 20% of the 60% bouncers into that 40% that view and convert right. 2% of the time, okay. right? So obviously we'll, we'll, we'll probably need to do a little bit of um, math there, but the math that we realized was, hey, it's actually a better use of our time to try to solve the onboarding problem and just let the abandoned problem sit for a second because we actually were able to solve the abandoned problem, sorry, onboarding problem, get to a point where we're pushing more folks down the, the funnel and then focus on the abandoned problem to create an uplift on a larger population. Focusing on the abandoned problem first would have actually resulted in the same outcome, but the time it took to realize all of this outcome, we would have lost revenue in the process of getting there. Mm -hmm. 
Gotcha. I, I I love how you've laid this out, man. Like I, the, the first time I, I saw it, I was like uh, trying to figure out like how you charted out like the business value versus complexity there, but like whether you're, you're taking like client data and, and examples there to build that up, but also saying that like, this is obviously going to be different for every company. Like to me, the way you like walk this through, like the workshop is essentially like a holistic conversion rate optimization analysis, like looking at a specific customer's funnel and identifying the areas of, of opportunity. Like you said, like sometimes moving the onboarding rate is going to have a much bigger impact at the bottom line than just like fixing abandoned carts. So like, it, yeah, it, to me, like uh, even some of the options you, you've got in there were, were really cool. So yeah, we'll, we'll share that, uh, the graphic in, in the show notes for, uh, for listeners, but, um, yeah, it, it, assuming that the data is where it needs to be, like you said, the next stage is kind of operational excellence and we get to focus a little bit more on Mark deck tooling and, and how do we implement a lot of this stuff. Um, AI tooling is getting all the hype uh, these days, and uh, we've been down deep the rabbit hole on on AI recently. Uh, we did a four-part series that covered a few AI topics that include stuff like how to parse out the gimmicky AI tools from the valuable tools that marketers should be trying. We talked about things like predictive analytics and propensity models, and we also had a full episode. The first one, actually, part one, was just talking about how fast could AI change or replace marketing jobs. I feel like they're the human element of all this is like holy shit like some of the shit i can do in gpt4 right now like is mind-blowing to think that you know just like 10 months ago i i'd be able to do that today you wrote about integrating open ai to mcp you're clearly on the cutting edge of of ai and, and personalization marketing applications right now i'd love to get your take on on some ai topics here maybe we can start with like what do you think are the challenges that AI has to replace everything a marketer does today? Yeah, and and I'll say, uh, you know, at the speed that AI is being evolved, I've actually had to create a group of folks that meet every Monday night. We talk about everything that we're finding because we just we found that we really could not keep up individually. We actually had to band together and say, hey, you know, you focus on this, you focus on that, you focus on this, and every Monday night we'll report out. And we, we've we found that there's a lot of synergy there in terms of keeping up one and two, actually taking those learnings and in, in embedding that back into our world of MarTech. So um, I guess there's a lot of perspectives on this. There's a lot of bets that we can make, but I would say, you know, in terms of the evolution of AI, we have to think about AI in the marketing space as two different things. There's curation AI, which we're, we're all familiar with. And, you know, there's been a lot of documentaries on, you know, what curation AI does on social media, targeted ads, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, there's the, the evolution in the last, let's say, six months of generation AI. So everything that we're talking about in terms of chat GPT, uh, mid journey, all of that. And I'd say the combination of the two is really what's going to create new technologies and new processes within the marketing world. So I, I do think that's going to take time, right? Even prior to six months ago, curation AI was actually in a, in a situation that it could really run your marketing program for you as long as you knew how to integrate it in a way that made sense. And you could use the tool and prompt it in a way that it, it goes out and actually personalizes the content delivered to your customer. But the reality is, Industry doesn't work that way, right? So it, when I'm when I'm thinking about e-commerce, of course, getting things wrong and, and recommending the wrong product, let's say, fifteen percent of the time, totally fine, right? Eighty-five percent of the time, you actually recommend the right product. You're creating a situation that marketers today 
could not do manually. 85% of the time, an AI getting it right is going to create a massive uptick in revenue. And that's just massive. But when you start to look at other industries, for instance, financial services, recommending the wrong APR for a mortgage loan or wrong, recommending the, the wrong, um, let's say, diagnosis for a healthcare industry, you can't get that wrong. There's no 15% that's okay with getting that wrong, right? So <laughs> now you start to get it. Yeah. So you start to get into a situation where curation AI can only go so far because of the way the technology works today and how it gets applied to heavily regulated uh, industries. So obviously, as I start to look at my clients and how they've in, embedded curation AI into their technology, there's a lot of test and learn, test into things, but there's still a lot of, let's call it, marketer control being applied to make sure that regulations are being followed depending on the industry it's a little bit more you know obviously the the least i've i've seen is within e-commerce that being said even within e-commerce there's still an idea of yes let the ai recommend it but let's slot in some additional merchandising control because we want these products to move from a velocity perspective so um there is there is time that's going to be needed to actually embed mm -hmm. in culture of these companies, enterprise level companies that have these processes and have the way that that, that they know how work, have a way that they work and, and they know that it works and want to actually integrate these, these tools. So that, that brings us into generation AI. So obviously there's a main issue in using AI from a curative curation perspective, which is needing the copy and needing the content. Obviously, when you re rely on a design team that has, you know, has to go out and build those images, approve the copy, and you start to build the generative AI into the process, you start to get into a position where you know, MidJourney can spit out images in seconds that would take your design team weeks to take, to build. So obviously now you get into a situation where you can inject that technology into the process. And now a combination of curation AI and generation AI actually runs your entire marketing program, right? Generation AI will generate the copy and content for the curation AI to target the right users at the right time with the right AI generated content. So where does that leave the marketer? I think, I think with industries of low regulation, marketers become critical prompt thinkers and industries with high regulation, they would also add the job title of AI regulator. As you were discussing this, like it was another thought kind of came through my head a, a few weeks ago, I was on the driving around in my car and I listened to the radio and the radio broadcasters were discussing the Slack and they're like, wow, people are using Slack. Did you know that there's a Slack <laughs> thing out there, which my mind goes towards, well, we're all, you know, on a podcast talking about humans and MarTech. We're pretty deep into the technology space, but general broad adoption, how much risk do you think people should see to their to their regular day job like obviously there will be a shift when slack came out we all started using slack in our day jobs but generally speaking like it's still the adoption is still slow even e-commerce there's lots of people who who refuse to buy online to this day where do you think that lands us like in terms of the trajectory or the timeline of uh uh ai taking or replacing or fundamentally altering marketing jobs I, I definitely think from a fundamentally altering marketing jobs, I think that's something that's going to happen. The timetable, I, I venture a bet and guess that, you know, we're, we're talking about five to 10 years in terms of altering what we do and how we do it. Um, and, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens in terms of the technology and how it evolves. I think that's the, that's the part that's unknown is can we take generation AI? Can we take curation AI? 
turn into a technology that actually starts to transcend what we're seeing today. And that's the part I think folks are scared about, right? Is as the technology exists today, I have to prompt it with a critical thought out um, prompt that actually makes sense for the outcome it's going to give me. Now, we can see how that would translate if we started to unleash generative AI into the market. I still need to prompt it with something that makes sense with a, a ton of knowledge uh, based on my you know, experience running marketing programs. But can the prompt prompt itself? And that's where you know we start to think about things like AutoGPT, where we give it a goal and it just starts to actually prompt itself based on um, certain you know understanding of of whatever the goal is, and starts to look for that understanding based on that goal. Now, if we if we pass it a goal of, hey, I want you to you know optimize right my revenue seven uh, percent based on product recommendations against profile affinities that are captured by you know, user profiles created against e-commerce, web visits, and mobile visits. Are we going to get to the point where that technology can say, I can take that goal, I can dissect it in a way that actually I can start to understand what you're trying to do, pick up your CMS and all your content, potentially generate my own content, and start to inject and optimize for that conversion rate. Um, I like to be on the more optimistic end that that's not going to happen, which is why I still think that there's going to be a need for marketers to be the critical prompt thinkers and potentially AI regulators within industries where regulation is heavily required. Um, I tend to think that there's not going to be a situation where that type of technology is going to be in the next five, 10 years created very quickly, or it's not going to be, if it is created quickly, adopted very quickly. Because as I said, we're still working on adoption for curation AI. And as you just mentioned, Phil, we're still working on adoption of what is what is even Slack? What does it do? So I, I think the technology might exist, um, but how quickly is it actually going to be integrated into the day-to-day -day lives of our marketers? That's going to be the tough part. Yeah, I think adoption across industries, it, it, there's going to be a wide spectrum of of like how fast some of these tools are are adopted, right? Like you you talked about some of the more regulated industries. Like I my startup right now is in in healthcare and like we haven't even untapped like the whole area of PII and, and PHI, like you mentioned in like finance services companies like recommending the wrong product is really bad but like surfacing phi data in an email to customers is like the worst thing you can do there so like yeah i think adoption is going to be slower in in some industries for sure but like if i told you last year that in a year from now you'd be able to feed your customer research to a chat ui and ask it to spit out an audience strategy and write a five-part email onboarding series based on the top five segments of use cases and match that with like your brand tone and personality and then connect that to zapier and build those templates and hubspot and suggest a b testing experiments like you would have told me I was bad shit crazy if I told you that like that would be possible today. So if like if we can do that today with like plugins in in OpenAI, like imagine in five years, imagine in ten years. Like I guess my point is like I'd rather be worried and it light a fire under my ass to learn and innovate. And like, even if my job isn't replaced, I still learned a ton and I'm probably way more efficient at my role. Like you said, using mid journey and, and, and other tools rather than be a skeptic and, and watch all my peers get ready while I take the contrarian opinion. And, you know, in case jobs are in fact replaced faster than many realize, like, I think the, the optimist here is, is, is better positioned. Right. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think that there's an impetus, and that this is why we started the weekly weekly connects uh, around AI, and and actually started talking about, hey, what what have we learned, right? Because not only is it hard enough to keep up with the technology just from a passive perspective, but if you're if you're diving deep into this technology and saying, hey, there's an impetus to learn because I need to keep up because it's going to change what I do. I think we all agree to that. It's going to change what everyone does. So if if you're trying to keep up, it's hard enough to keep up passively, let alone deeply. So we, we started the, the Weekly Connect to, to actually start to share and democratize our knowledge and start to actually put it into uh, practice uh, based on what we've all learned and then say, hey, you know, based on X, Y, and Z happening, for instance, a, a new program, we're, we're taking a strong look at a spinach.io. And spinach.io's intent is to, to try to create an AI that actually acts as a project manager during your, 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 your video conferences. And so we started to use this technology and we started to actually say, hey, you know what? The life of a project manager is going to be very different. And these, these things are coming up, off, you know, that's one example. These things are coming up everywhere. And so if I was a project manager, I'd now start to think about, okay, this technology, how is it going to change what I do, right? I can either look at it as finish.io is going to actually facilitate my job and, and make me more efficient. And this is how I start to play a, a role, or I can start to be, you know, in a, in a more pass, pessimistic avenue of spinach.io is going to replace me entirely. What do I do about that? And I think that what you do about it is you start to learn and start to pivot around it. So that's where the idea of AI regulator, as you said, is going to, you know, start to show up on LinkedIn headlines, as I said. Yeah, I'd love to, to play around with Spinach.io. Actually, I, I remember their their product hunt launch uh, last year and, and this idea of like replacing your your scrum master. Um, yeah, I listen, I, I feel like we could go on and on about AI. I love your your AI discussion idea about like learning as this kind of like uh, way of splitting it up across uh, different people. I'll uh, I'll definitely ask you for for an invite to that. This is uh, an area that I'm, I'm super passionate about uh, diving into for sure. But maybe we can uh leave you with one uh or two last questions i guess um i like regardless of what happens exactly through ai like you said there's operational excellence and that kind of like jumps into that but like the other pillar is the importance of data management and data excellence as you put it and i want to go back to that a little bit and, and chat about cdps and, and warehouse native apps because this is like super top of mind as well for for me right now and, and prepping some some different episodes on the podcast um, this is where I wanted to to tie some of your your earlier comments about like ETL at the start of the episode as well. Um, there's totally a trend in Martech tools right now that's kind of like connected apps or warehouse first, warehouse natives. There's a bunch of different names for it, but it's basically this idea of tools that sit on top of your data warehouse instead of creating another copy of your user database. We had someone from message gears on the podcast last year who kind of like introduced this idea to us we had brian leonard from grouperu that was acquired by airbyte who is like introducing this reverse etl uh tooling idea that we were like very confused about that he was talking on the podcast but like there's a big shift from needing to have different databases of your users and connecting everything via individual api integrations like a lot of our listeners are are probably familiar with but i'd love to to get your thoughts here and I know you guys are deep in the, the Salesforce marketing uh, pro programs and, and different platforms there, but like, how long do you think the rest of the industry is going to take to catch up? And, and do you see this as, as kind of the future of um, some of these tools? 
Yeah, of course. This is, I think, a really top of mind right now in terms of the martech martech industry, where where we're seeing a lot of the innovation is around these, you know, warehouse native apps, right? So I think I we think of at one to one, we think of martech products as a tool in your toolbox. So the right tool ultimately really depends on the problem you're trying to solve, and connected apps are really just another tool in that toolbox, and they're fantastic. They're amazing tools for the problem they're trying to solve. But I think we as MarTech practitioners really need to be clear about what that means. And, you know, having been part of some of these competes and been the one that's doing the vendor assessment, I think there's a lot of conversations that are being muddied right now uh, by some of the marketing tactics that are being put out there by some of the connected apps. So I guess let's let's talk about the, the big elephant in the room, right? Composable CDPs versus traditional CDPs. Yeah. Uh, I think the argument there is stemming from the desire to package reverse ETLs tools in a way that sells to marketers. But I think that causes a lot of confusions of, of what is a reverse ETL really doing. And so, you know, in terms of a CDP, one of the big aspects or, or features of a CDP would be the ability for identity resolution. We know that reverse ETLs don't do that. That doesn't negate the value of reverse ETL. It just means it's not a like for like or apples to apples comparison, right? And so now if I start to sell reverse ETL as a replacement for CDP, I need to make sure I'm selling into an organization where the marketer is positioned to work with their data warehouse owners to get that data structured in a way that works for them, right? We, we talked a little bit earlier about what happens when your data isn't structured in a way that works for your personalization or marketing program. And so kind of roll that up into what does that mean, right? I think let's not forget that different databases of your users, that was a situation that was created because marketing did not have a seat at the data table. And so CDPs were really trying to create a solution for marketers that did not have that seat. Now, I think we can treat this entire innovation as an impetus for change and get the marketer, marketing organization a seat at that table, but we know how that kind of unfolds, especially at the enterprise level where buying you know, a, a reverse ETL tool isn't the impetus to change an organizational issue, right? Like we talked about operational excellence. Buying a new tool generally doesn't say, say, solve operational issues. So as we start to kind of pair that back, I, I think to answer your question, Going back to reverse, you know, the, the big big conversation around reverse ETLs versus CDPs, I do think they're both solving problems. I do think they're solving different problems. And the the shift from what the problem is that CDPs solve into the reverse ETL world, I think we need to understand what that means from an operational lens and a data excellence lens, solve that root, root problem that CDPs evolved because of. If we can solve that root problem, then I think reverse ETLs provide a tremendous amount of value. Or if we're starting to sell into generally where we see SMBs, where marketing already has a seat at that data table, reverse ETLs make a huge sense, right? They make they make a huge amount of value in within that type of organization. So I, I guess the question is, is there a need to keep up based on the idea that do we believe all potential buyers, all potential clients of these technologies will have the same problems that can be solved by composable architecture. So it's really tough, right? Because I, I do believe we're moving more and more into this idea of a modern data stack where we do have a single database, we have a single view of the customer, but yeah. I, I do struggle also to see how quickly that can happen with this with these enterprise level customers where you know the advent of CDPs and personalization programs 
was not the impetus to bring marketing to the data table. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that reverse ETLs will be the, the thing that, you know, tips the scale in, in bringing them to the data table. We need to solve that problem first before reverse ETLs sells and solves to every single potential client. So, you know, sum, summing all that up, I, I think all of our clients have different issues and all of those issues need to be looked at subjectively. And then we need to bring out the right tools. So sometimes that right tool is a CDP, right? Sometimes that right tool is a reverse ETL. And then if we can get deeper and we can start to actually solve their operational and data excellence issues, then I think we can move into that modern data stack. And I do think that's the direction. Yeah, I love this topic, Pritik. There's there's ton to unpack here. You you made a lot of amazing points. I I don't actually think that like reverse detail tools are trying to convince marketers that they can replace package CDPs. Like I, I think they're making the point that they are one of a few several players in a list of components that can make up a custom composable CDP stack as opposed to going with just the one tool and being locked into one vendor and being subjected to one pricing model. You know, like a lot of these composable components would include additional solutions for ID resolution via like Snowplow or doing something custom in your data warehouse and then using Snowplow or something else for like first party data collection like you said different tools solve different problems and and sometimes a solution requires more flexibility than what the legacy cdp could offer like segment for example just added um you know phi and uh, pii components to it it didn't have it for a long time but segment's super expensive for startups Uh, like when you graduate from their startup pricing plan that's that's free they're charging you per event or, or per user and for a lot of companies that are like uh, organic SEO based that are startups like this super expensive for a lot of them. But um, anyways, yeah, I feel like we could go on and on a, a, about this topic here, like marketers fighting for a seat at the data table. Love, I love the way you put that. I think that's, that's where both marketers and data teams need to learn more about their respective counterparts. And I feel like is the the culmination of this episode here a little bit, like ultimately the end goal is growing the business together, whether you're working with an agency um, within your company or not, but like, both data teams and marketers should work together to to hit those goals and 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 grow the company, right? Yeah, exactly. I think there's a tremendous amount of value that marketers could bring at that table. Um, and I, I just every organization we work with, I, we push for that marketer to to fight for a seat at it because I think you know, as you said, we're all we're all moving towards the same goal, right? At, at an organization, we're all wanting to create an uptick in that revenue or you know whatever that key KPI is. So uh, let's all sit at the same table. Very cool. Um, for to to wrap up our interview, we we always ask one question of all of our guests, and and Pratik, this was like a masterclass and uh, just a lot of interesting topics. One one component that I want to draw out for our listeners just to go back to you're discussing about uh, the personalization roadmap and the decision making process that you made around the example of you know to go not go against the abandoned cart goals, but going against a less common goal. I think the kind of thinking that you walked us through there, that type of masterclass of thinking is something that all of us in marketing should do more often and uh, uh, push forward uncommon objectives necessarily to get get cool results. But I'll stop rambling. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about happiness. We talked about goals. We talked a lot about a lot of different topics. You're an agency founder, investor, husband, dog dad, sports enthusiast, avid backpacker, armchair space explorer, sci-fi book reader like us, your pilot, you've got a ton going on. Uh, so one question we ask everybody is how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance in your life while uh, staying happy? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. I, I think, you know, one of the things, 
that's come up for me recently is, is a lot of folks have asked, hey, how's it going, right? You built your own agency, you built your own business, and how are you doing? And, and one of the things that I, I keep saying without realizing it is, hey, look, if I fail, I can always get a job. And my, my wife is always quick to remind me of, you have a job. That's your business. And, and it, <laughs> I think that the reality is it just doesn't feel that way, right? I, I've, I've found a way to actually capture my entrepreneurial spirit with my drive to solve problems and mix it with my passion for AI. And honestly, it just doesn't feel like work. So I think, you know, part of the happiness, part of, part of the answer is really, I, I don't know if I have a job. I, I, I do what I do and I do what I love every day. So I think that that's, that's a, that's part of it. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, that being said, I think recharging is super important. So, you know, spending a lot of time with my, with my dog and my wife and just traveling around, we are, we are avid backpackers and we like to do road trips with the dog and go hiking and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I've always had a tough time celebrating small wins and acknowledging accomplishments. So my wife definitely forces me to slow down, recognize how far we've come as an agency and how far we've come as a couple and how far I've come in my career. So she likes to you know, tell me to switch things off and, hey, you're going to celebrate that win today. We're going to go out to dinner. We can get Thai food, whatever it is that we, we want to do to, to make it a little bit special. And then, you know, long, long, last but not least, I've got an amazing team um, and the, t- the team that we've been able to put together, um, you know, anytime there's issues. It doesn't matter who it is. They're willing to put the hat on, right? If, if there's an issue with, you know, some JavaScript somewhere, it doesn't matter what you do, what your role is at the company. I've seen folks, you know, just hop on a call at 9 p.m. Say, hey, what do I need to do? I, I heard there's an issue and I'm, I'm willing to help. So um, I think putting together that team has, has really been beneficial for, for success and happiness. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, I say I stay off of social media. I, I found <laughs> found myself really really competing with folks on social media a lot. And, and I, it got really toxic really quickly. So I've just started focusing on being better than I was yesterday. And ultimately that, that made all the difference. Boom. I love it. Uh, shout out to all the partners and spouses out there uh, supporting your entrepreneurial partners. Uh, yeah. What you said there, Pratik, ring so true to me. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. That's uh, super helpful. Yeah. Awesome answer. Thanks. Thanks all for your time today, Pratik. We'll, we'll obviously link to your your LinkedIn, even though uh, you're 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 not always active on there, as, as you said, but we'll link to uh, one-to-one's uh, website also, one-to-one.tech. Anything else you want to uh, plug for the listeners before uh, we let you go? First of all, thank you guys for having me. And if you know your listeners have any personalization needs, feel free to reach out.